Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening to this podcast. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. Um, my name is Jane Winter, and I'm interested to talk today about fibre uh, on a gluten-free diet. More and more research is uncovering how consuming a variety of whole grain fibre can support good gut health. But then what about our patients and clients who are on a gluten-free diet and might be restricted by which grains they can actually eat? One in 10 Australians have non-celiac wheat intolerance and one in 70 have celiac disease. So this conundrum affects quite a substantial number of people. Um, And today on the podcast, we're going to discuss how people who are on a gluten-free diet can get the right balance and quality of fibre. This month, February, is Gut Health Month, a national month to talk about common gut problems and the nutritional interventions that can help consumers feel better. In today's podcast, um, we're joined by Dr. Kim Faulkner-Hogg, and we're going to dive into the world of those who are dealing with non-celiac wheat intolerance or celiac disease, and how they can meet their total fibre and prebiotic fibre requirements on this lifelong eating plan. Dr. Kim Faulkner-Hogg is an advanced um, accredited practicing dietitian with over 20 years experience with celiac disease and food intolerances. Kim completed a PhD in celiac disease and the gluten minutia of a gluten-free diet in 2004, and she was part of the original working party defining the low-gluten and gluten-free food standards, as well as being a consultant to Celiac Australia for a number of years. A really important focus for Kim is educating people about celiac disease, intolerances, gluten, and the gluten-free diet, and she takes um, opportunities to address dietitians, a whole range of health professionals, the food industry, as well as the public um, on this topic. The podcast today, um, we're grateful to have the support of Freedom Foods Classic Gluten-Free Cereals. Just a disclaimer, the podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. This podcast is for your information only, and we advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking any action. So after that lengthy introduction, welcome, Kim, and um, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Jane. Look, thank you for having me and, and you know, listening to all of the things I'm going to say today. <laughs> and we're going to pick your brains. So <laughs> before we get started on that, can you just tell us a little bit about your story and your career um, so far, particularly your experience in this area of celiac disease and food intolerance? Okay. Uh, look, I'm a Queensland girl. I did all my study up in Queensland, but it was my husband's job that brought us down here to Sydney. And when I first started at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, I was actually working on the head and neck wards um, in cancer and was seconded one day a week up to the allergy unit. So when I got to the allergy unit, I met, um, you know, Dr. Anne Swain, who's a dietitian who's quite well known. And she started tutoring me with salicylates, amines and glutamates, you know, words that I'd heard in lectures, 
um, but I hadn't actually placed in any sort of context. And, you know, here I was learning it from the pioneers of the low chemical approach to, you know, food sensitivity. Gurus. Gurus, exactly right. So the 80s and the 90s typically was a time when most doctors poo-pooed the idea that food might lead to symptoms, not just gut symptoms, but any sort of symptom. And, and, you know, here I was now being, you know, tutored in these food chemicals that um, might lead to symptoms in people. And so with my time there, we've certainly looked at a lot of different food triggers in a lot of uh, people um, over the, the period of time that I've been there. Um, in the 90s, when I, was, when I started there, we had about five people with celiac disease come through the unit and they were very adamant up front. They said, do not tell me I'm eating gluten. I have made everything from scratch because I can't even buy a gluten-free product that doesn't have wheat starch in it, and I've still got symptoms. So from these encounters, um, Dr. Lovelay, Dr. Salby, a gastroenterologist, and myself, we started a research project to look at uh, sort of non-gluten triggers as a reason for symptoms in celiac disease. But at about the same time that this was getting underway, came this proposal that the food standards in Australia were going to change. And so um, wheat, starch and malt were, were being taken out of foods labelled gluten-free. A lot of people don't even know these days that it was even in there. Um, and they were bringing in a brand new test and it was going to be this new benchmark for detectability of gluten in foods. And so we thought we'll try and capture this. So we began a second study um, that was trying to look at this change. We're monitoring people for a two-year period of time as this change started to come into, the, into the, 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 the foods to see what did happen to symptoms in villi after about two years of not having this constant wheat starch in the background of a diet. So this got me really involved in the tiny, tiny levels of gluten that were in, food, in foods. And that's what I've termed the gluten minutiae. A lot of people might not understand what I'm talking about because it's not a term that's always out there. So, look, I had a client in the 90s that really set my path down this track. Um, he came to me at least two years after his diagnosis for celiac disease. Um, and it was just as uh, when these food standards were changing. And there was this big emphasis at the time in the celiac disease community to remove all things that were derived from wheat. And glucose syrup was really high up on that list. Now, this ingredient was in a number of his favourite foods, and it was a tipping point for him into anxiety, depression, developing anorexia and fear of food. So what happened to him as a result of this movement that, you know, was coming about, it really impacted me and the thought of what I said putting, you know, could potentially impact somebody like that if going forward this is, you know, what we were going to be doing. So it took about another five years to get the message out there to people that wheat-derived glucose syrup had no detectable gluten in it and it was safe for people with celiac disease. So this didn't need to be removed from their diet. So I've spent sort of years trying to work out how to teach this gluten minutiae to discuss it in some sort of framework that people may be able to understand. But we've had about two years now where the emphasis has been black and white. It's all or none and the minutiae goes unheard of by the majority. Um, my experience tells me that if people can understand this concept, then they experience less overall anxiety, which is running rampant in the gluten-free community these days. I feel the tide's turning now and people are now sort of wanting to put some of this um, minutiae into perspective. And so that's where I am now coming forward. Yeah, and I think you've raised a couple of interesting points there. And obviously, 
you talk about the gurus and the pioneers and the and Swain and that group, but you've been a bit of a pioneer yourself in understanding this whole gluten-free concept. But I think that bringing it back to the impact that those words can have, I mean, telling someone that they need to go on a gluten-free diet can spin off into this depression, anxiety, disordered yes. eating, so many far-reaching effects that yes. it really is our responsibility as dietitians to understand it and to then be able to talk about it properly yes. so we're not causing secondary problems. It went unheard of for years, but now people are looking at this and realising that this is, is what's happening and now we're trying to address it. So now you're running a private practice in Sydney. Um, can you tell us a bit about the sort of patients? Are they purely like celiac or maybe? Look, I've tried to stay within the two specialties of food intolerance and celiac disease. So I see people with celiac disease and dermatitis epidermis. Look, they could be newly diagnosed and starting their journey, um, but many of them are halfway through and they just want more clarification or, um, you know, their blood tests haven't come back or biopsies as expected. And so, you know, they, they want more in-depth um, information. Um, but I see people whose symptoms, um, you know, persist and I review their gluten-free diet. And, um, you know, some people may be heading towards the, the refractory. For some people, the gluten-free diet just isn't enough. They're doing everything that they should be. And at that point, that's when my first PhD project, you know, comes in that we might be looking at some non-gluten issues as well as gluten as two completely separate issues. So we will go down that path. But I'll also see people without celiac disease um, who feel that they react to gluten or wheat or other possible food triggers as well. Um, we look at healthy eating. We look at further food investigation protocols that we can follow. Um, I will see a number of people who just are restricting food groups. So that could be vegetarian, that could be vegan, it could just be dietary, it could be you know, uh, lactose or milk, and they're just seeking nutritional advice. And as a part of my private practice is the consulting and the lecturing and the student lectures. And I do a lot of other written webinar projects and things as they arise. So... Um... You've touched on it a little bit. We know that around maybe up to a third of Australians kind of monitor or keep an eye on their gluten intake in some way. Can you just sort of um, give us a background according to the actual evidence? What conditions do require a lifelong gluten-free diet? Okay. Look, there's a number of conditions where we need to avoid wheat. They're not all lifelong. So I'll just the lifelong one really is the diagnosis of celiac disease and dermatitis epidermis. Um, so gluten in celiac disease causes two things. You know, it leads to all of the different symptoms. They can be gastrointestinal or non-gastrointestinal. Um, with the dermatitis epidermis, it can be the skin um, itch, uh, you know, around the elbows, knees and buttocks. But in both conditions, there's also damage of the lining of the small intestine. And, and not being able to absorb nutrients properly can lead to other conditions, you know, osteoporosis, anemia, sort of, there's quite a long list of conditions. And so the motivation then to stay lifelong is driven by what's happening at the level of the gut and future health and what's happening at the level of their symptoms. Now, the other conditions aren't necessarily lifelong, but it does just depend sort of when you get it. Weed allergy that presents in childhood sort of as eczema and itch, most of them will outgrow it. It's very, very rare that that would be a lifelong condition. Um, and it could be outgrown by, you know, primary school or high school. Wheat-dependent exercise-induced anaphylaxis actually doesn't tend to start until you're an adult. And that is where you have exercise and wheat at the 
same time, that leads to potential anaphylaxis. Good heavens, is that uncommon? I've never heard of that. It is not very common, no, um, but um, but I've seen quite a few people now. And sometimes they call it food dependent because it's not always the wheat. I have seen it with other foods as right. well. But wheat is one that at least there's a test we can test mm. for a component for that. But again, how strict and how, uh, you know, it, it'll be lifelong once they get it, but it doesn't necessarily always have to be strict. And that's very independent. So if you've got that and you're listening Please, you have to talk about this with your doctor as to as to what you're doing. Um, and then there's the group that have the non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And look, this is really poorly understood. It's it's you know it might have come out in, in 1974, but it really has only reared its head in the 2000s. And um, not everybody has inflammation. We don't know how to you know particularly diagnose it yet. So. At this point in time, there is no internal damage. So we're dealing with the external symptoms. I mean, there could be internal symptoms, but we're dealing with symptoms. And how much you avoid the the wheat depends on the level of symptom you're prepared to live with. So, um, again, and it comes and goes. People can have periods where they're really strict with it and periods where they're not. And so when when, uh, someone does embark on a gluten-free diet for whatever the reason is there um you talked about the impact it can have on their life totally but um what are just some of the daily challenges for someone who's trying to follow um, a gluten-free diet yeah um because the you know the, the symptoms sort of drive compliance for many if they don't have symptoms you you've really got to tell them what their long-term you know consequences may be from the belied perspective malabsorption and so getting that across is, you know, this real impact of this is a health condition. This is something that needs to be taken seriously. People really need to be taught how to read a food label. If people get to, if people with celiac disease get to see a dietitian, that should be taught. But what I find is people who don't have celiac disease don't often seek a dietitian. They do a lot of it themselves and they don't really understand how to, feed, to read a food label and mistakes can be made and misconceptions can um, come up. With people with celiac disease, there's never a day off. Um, you you can't, um, you know, go away for a weekend and just say, look, I'm not going to worry about this. Uh, so all of the time, what they're eating has to be in their, their front of their mind. Do they need to cook it? Do they need to take it? Um, you know, what's my plan for the sort of the next meal? So they need to think about the cross-contact points, the double dipping points, but, you know, within a kitchen, they need to understand that their home prepared food is is most likely going to be the safest that they that they will have. So they do need to get their family and friends involved to make their make their needs aware to a wider group of people who are involved in their food prep so that they can help them. You know, when they're going out to restaurants again, there's a number of questions that they need to ask. So it's just there's never a holiday. It's 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 constant. Nothing spontaneous about just going out. And I think when you, when we think about our just normal day, if you don't have um, considerations like that, and then think about your eating occasions, which are totally unplanned often, yes. it adds a whole other dimension to it, doesn't it? It does. And, and events that are traditional that have traditional food can be really um, hard for somebody with celiac disease who now can't have that food and there's not a gluten-free option for it. Yeah, and I remember... Um, 
years and years ago, uh, practicing and seeing a young teenage boy who was diagnosed because his sister had been diagnosed. And so they went along and did tests on him and he was diagnosed as celiac without any symptoms. And, yeah. you know, that's a tough thing to try and convey the health risks associated with something that you feel absolutely fine. Um, exactly. It was not happy to be put on a gluten-free diet. Um, no. I can say that much. But so the, there's been, I guess, a bit of a, grain-free trend has come and gone. Um, but I guess there's quite a few myths and misconceptions around gluten-free. Um, what do you see in the media and amongst the public about the sort of the misconceptions? One of the things that comes up from time to time is this concept that wheat sourdough bread can be eaten by people with celiac disease because the fermenting process has um, reduced the gluten. Now, the fermenting process does decrease gluten. It also decreases the fructan component. So it makes it suitable for people with FODMAPs. And I think that's where we get the crossover of misinformation. It's certainly not suitable for people with celiac disease. And look, there's a few other things that are out there. And I'm usually not all that dogmatic about the myths and the misconceptions um, because a fully formed sort of explanation often starts with the spark of an idea and then it may take time to prove. So as I said earlier, you know, there weren't very many doctors in the 80s that thought beyond lactose as a provoker of something that might have caused a symptom. But today, no one questions this connection with food and symptoms. And there's plenty of theories out there now about what the food triggers may be. So I'm sort of careful about when a new idea comes out. You know, I'd love to step forward in 100 years and see where we are with, with gluten and food. People are different. They have different belief systems. They have different convictions. They have different motivations about the things that they read. And some are really itching to do something. And so I just, I like them to talk about it. And if they want to bring up, you know, gluten and weight and gluten and autoimmune disorders, I will discuss with them where we are with the research at this point in time. And if they want to pursue something, I would much prefer that they pursued it with me and we could look at the pitfalls of gluten-free eating going forward than just going, you know, talk to the hand out the door and then try and do it themselves and not know what the risks of gluten-free eating may entail. Yeah, and I think that has been a bit of a fallback position, hasn't it, in past when um, healthcare professionals, not just dietitians, but generally dismiss um, a patient's concerns or worries because we don't consider them evidence-based. But it doesn't matter, does it, if whatever we think about it, if that's what the patient thinks, then that's a real issue for them. Yes, and we've got to try to make their diet um, nutritionally balanced. And that's kind of one of our main roles, working in this area of food restriction. You know, the main thing is if something's missing, how are we going to make it nutritionally balanced? And so that is uppermost with basically everyone that walks in the door. Yeah, so what if someone who is on a gluten-free diet and following it quite strictly, let's talk about someone who really does have to be very careful with it. Just briefly, what are the sort of at-risk nutrients? in their diet? So look, there's, there's, I would divide my nutrients into those at short-term risk and long-term risk. And short-term risk are usually those that are related to the villi being stubbed and they have to grow back. So we're not going to talk about the short-term. People who are on it for a long-term and that, you know, and, and the villi is taken out of it. The main risk really is fibre. Um, it's the whole grain fibre sources and fibre in general. Um, sure, fruits, vegetables, nuts, they contain fibre, they're gluten-free, 
but not lots of people actually grab the fruits, the vegetables and the nuts as their general snack. You know, they still will swap out that wheat product for the gluten-free commercial cracker biscuit or baked good. Now, many of these have starch as its first ingredient, which has no fiber, protein, fat or nutrients other than complex sugars. And, you know, that's pretty much ditto for the first ingredient in many gluten-free breads and pastas as well. So therefore, what contributes to the nutrient profile of a gluten-free product is generally different to the wheat product. Um, you know, traditionally, there was not much whole grain other than brown rice in, in you know, past gluten-free products. But today, manufacturers have got this message about fibre and it's definitely improving. And we're getting more quinoa and sorghum and teff, uh, buckwheat, uh, legume products and things like that into the gluten-free products. So that's sort of number one. But the second nutrient um, is generally associated with the lack of fortification of gluten-free products. You know, wheat breakfast cereals and breads, they're fortified with iron and folate, B vitamins and sometimes zinc. Um, and, you know, loosely speaking, could provide about a third of your day requirements, say, for the iron before you even start to eat meat. But this doesn't occur in most gluten-free products. There's a smattering of companies that fortify, but it's not common. Um, so, again, I will teach strategies to where they may be able to get these nutrients elsewhere. Now, they're probably the main two. So depending on what the rest of the diet is, iodine could be at risk if they're choosing not to have the fortified iodine in their bread. Um, and often people will say a gluten-free diet is low in calcium. And that irritates me <laughs> because <laughs> a gluten-free, gluten is not in dairy foods. So very few Plain dairy foods are a problem. And um, if you can eat dairy, then you're eating, you've got your calcium. But what happens is many people who are avoiding gluten also avoid dairy. And mm. so, yes, you need to think about calcium, but it's not because of the gluten, but you have to look at the rest of their diet. Yeah, so again, that's just looking a bit more closely and talking to them and listening to what the client has to say. So if we can just pedal back to the fibre question a bit. I mean, I think, you know, years ago, and when, certainly when I first graduated as a dietitian, it was like soluble and insoluble. That was as much as we talked about different fibres. But now fibre has just had an explosion of, of research now and we're got different qualities, different quantity, different types of fibres. We talk prebiotic fibres as being, you know, the fertiliser for the gut. Um, so when when a, a person is eating a gluten-free diet, is it enough to just say, I have a diversity of plant foods, or do we actually need to look more closely at what plant foods are making up their, their diet for fibre? Yeah, uh, look, it's interesting. I think currently we certainly need to say diversity of whole plant foods. Um, you know, to provide that range of the soluble and the insoluble fibres that are resistant starch. I think the gluten-free diet actually has quite a few of the soluble fibres um, and not as much as the, the insoluble, you know, those outer whole grain sort of husks. Um, so for those eating gluten-free sort of legumes, uh, I, I try to talk about the legume sources uh, because they've got the extra B vitamins in them that, as I said, might not be fortified. Um, and especially since, you know, sort of most gluten-free breads and cereals, um, you know, don't have that extra fortification, I'm trying to think about where we're we going to get B vitamins naturally into someone's diet. 
So I encourage the use of lentils and legumes, you know, to dishes. Um, I suggest that legume pastas are often used in place of just the high starch-based white type of pasta that commonly replaces the the wheat pastas Um, because it will add both the the B vitamins and the good fibres into the diet. If we want to break the fibre sort of into components in a gluten-free diet, it does start to look a bit different. Um, So let's start with what doesn't change. I guess the soluble, the insoluble, you've got your prebiotic and your resistant starches in your fibres of the fruits, the vegetables, the nuts and the seeds. Now, this is going to be the same, um, obviously, in those that um, need gluten-free. So that contribution is consistent. But what is changing is that fibre contribution from the grain. So the whole grain wheat flour as a major ingredient in bread contributes the insoluble, the soluble and the prebiotic fibre in the form of the fructan. Now, these people can have oats. And so that means that you could have insoluble, I mean, a wheat eating person could have oats. So you could have the insoluble, the soluble and the prebiotic fibres and you've got your beta glucans. You've got the barley maxes. All of that disappears when we go gluten-free. If you've got wheat flour and it's even refined, you've still got a smattering of those fibres, they're just not as much, and you've got lower levels of nutrients. A typical gluten-free bread has starch as its leading ingredient. So this is because, you know, it's taste neutral. um, So it softens that flavour of the gluten-free flour grains, but the starch itself's got no fibre. And it's, uh, you know, not a prebiotic in that form. It's also stripped of its macro and micronutrients. So, you know, it provides really just a carbohydrate. Um, quite often, it, you know, it could be 70% of a product. So 10 to 30% of products may have soy flour, the quinoa or the buckwheat flours. The small amount of soy flour, it, it actually adds quite a bit of fibre and protein. Um, But then a lot of the the, the breads and the pastas will have things like inulin or guar gum or xanthan gum, which are your soluble fibres, but they're not in their sort of, um, you know, it's not a a raw food sort of form. It's a a refined product that's going in. Um, And so they are soluble, they're prebiotic. And so these help boost the fibre, you know, in an overall product, but there's not an actual lot of micronutrients present and not a lot of insoluble fibres present. And, you know, typically this will be the makeup of gluten-free baked goods and pastas that mimic that white refined sort of wheat product. Um, Now, maize starch can actually be manufactured into what they call a high maize starch. And this is a resistant starch, high maize. We can't buy it as an ingredient ourselves to use, but it is in some products labelled gluten-free. So I do tell clients to look out for it. And it's more so in things like um, gluten-free pancakes or muffin mixes and cakes like that to to sort of try and boost that fibre component that usually don't have whole grain flours in them. Um, And they're usually sort of high starch products. So the amount of this type of high sort of soluble, lower insoluble um, gluten-free product, the amount that it is eaten sort of along with the fruits and the vegetables is going to differ in each person. And I'm not sure how this overall fibre profile um, for those people with who are eating gluten-free may be compared to sort of a, a wheat diet overall fibre profile. So I encourage clients, you know, that I want them to see if they can find gluten-free breads that perhaps have added seeds as this is going to boost that sort of insoluble along with the soluble. 
I, I think there's a lot we have to learn yet about the effects of fibres in um, gluten-free eating. You know, we, we do know that the microbiome changes start to occur about 10 months before celiac disease is diagnosed from looking at a research group of children. And we also know that more people with celiac disease die from heart disease than the general population. Um, slightly more. I'm not going to exaggerate. Um, and the gluten-free diet sort of is often blamed for this influence on heart health. So again, you know, a diversity of whole plant products uh, in order to get the variety of fibres, I think, can promote the heart health as well as the good gut health. So, Kim, we've touched on this a bit, but practically, how can patients or your clients meet their total fibre and prebiotic fibre requirements on a gluten-free diet. And what are some of the examples of foods that they should focus on at various eating occasions in the day? All right. Well, why don't we start at breakfast and we can work through. So there's um, a number of breakfast cereals which can fall into that same trap that we were just discussing. They're high starch. There's a little bit of gluten-free flour and a few gums and not much else. So try to avoid that type. So I encourage people to read that label. Look, there are breakfast cereals aren't quite as high in fibre, but they are fortified with the B vitamins and the iron that we were discussing can be low. So it's good to throw them into your mixes of cereals as well. Look, other popular breakfast ideas are the, the smoothie, you know, with loads of sort of fruits and berries and nuts thrown in and some put in microgreens and sprouts and linseeds and all that sort of thing can be thrown in. Um, but because fibre you know, is low long-term, we also need to think where fibre is coming in, you know, over the day. So um, if we just think about general snacks, you know, a lot of people who are thinking about having a snack that reach for something that could be wheat-based. And if you're trying to do the exact swapping out for something that's gluten-free, um, again, you're going to run into that problem of high starches. So, you know, I discuss ideas such as Nuts is nuts and seed mixes, maybe dates that can be pureed up with nuts and coconut. You can you know buy them in supermarkets like that these days. Um, there are quite a few commercial gluten-free nut muesli bars and nut clusters that can boost fibre. But something people need to be aware of: um, it's difficult for parents to provide a muesli-like bar replacement for kids at school lunches because these nut bars are banned from most primary schools. Of course, there's always your fruits, your vegetables as great options. I discuss, say, hummus and legume dips, uh, along with crackers or vegetable sticks. Um, there's, you know, plain commercial popped uh, popcorn. There's legume chips, roasted legumes, you know, a number of seeded crackers, which have great fibre that can be thrown in for variety. But for lunches, I also try to get people to think a little bit differently. You know, instead of just swapping out that wheat bread and putting in a gluten-free bread, again, because of this high starch component to many of them, and many of the gluten-free breads and wraps don't actually meet the five grams per 100 gram mark for fibre. That just doesn't mean that I'm saying don't eat these breads. I'm just saying read the label and be aware of what's in them. You know, aim for maybe the seeded breads. Um, at least these will give some whole natural fibres that will come through. But with your sandwich, add vegetables, you know, do things to try to improve the, the fibre by the toppings. Um, but again, thinking outside of the box, instead of always being sandwiches, maybe, you know, people can think along the lines of a poke bowl style salad lunch. 
that contains, you know, gluten-free, sorry, gluten-free whole grains. You know, so using different combinations of, say, cooked quinoa, cooked buckwheat, millets, there's little cans of legumes you can buy easily that can throw into, you know, the salad mix. And it's a great way of just having more salad, getting more vegetables and fibre in from that perspective. Or you can make, say, vegetable quinoa or legume patties. They can be frozen. They can be thrown onto veg, into, you know, into sandwiches, into wraps, into salads. So I, you know, encourage the use also of the lentil and the pulse pastas. And this isn't only because they have the better profile for the fibre, um, but they will, it's a natural way of increasing the B vitamins, which we discussed earlier as well. So, you know, all these principles I've discussed, you can throw in then to your evening meal where, you know, perhaps it might be a bit more rice, so brown rice, a bit of quinoa, buckwheat or even lentils into rice can make it a bit nuttier loads of vegetables and you know dessert can be fruit fresh stewed pureed into sorbets so there's you know some ideas to increase that fiber yeah they're they're really great practical suggestions and as you say getting that mix of uh, not just the cereals but the legumes buckwheat alternate ones quinoa fruit and vegetables dairy or um, non-dairy equivalents are also going to help you meet all your micronutrients, calcium requirements and all those sorts of things as well. So I think they're really helpful tips. Yeah, great. Thanks. And then you, you've talked about, you know, the lentils, legumes, buckwheat, that sort of thing. But one of the one of the big areas that I think is still an area of confusion is oats. Mm-hmm. Um, and can they be included in a gluten-free diet or not? Okay. I, I'm guessing there's probably not just an answer of yes or no. It isn't. (laughs) Sort of with the oats, there's a controversy. People will read what's happening overseas. They will see that oats are allowed in gluten-free eating overseas. And so then they'll say, well, why can't we have oats here in Australia? And there are oats that are labelled gluten-free. And um, we're saying, well, why are they labelled gluten-free? And so, look, this whole question of oats, it's been misunderstood for many years. We in Australia tend to just lump oats in with gluten-containing foods. We say wheat, rye, barley, oats, wheat, rye, barley, oats, like there's no difference. And that's one of the things that I teach when I see people is not all gluten is equal. It's not just one thing. Gluten is a word. It sounds like one thing, but the chemistry of the gluten in the different grains is very, very different. So um, the chemical structure of gluten in um, in oats is quite different to what you find in wheat, rye and barley. So there's two particular amino acids, which let's just say wheat has a lot of. And what these amino acids do is sort of reject the enzymes in our gut. They they don't allow the enzymes in our gut to to get in and um, work and break down that gluten into small little molecules where it's going to be harmless. Now, because oats don't have very many of those particular two amino acid types, the enzyme can very happily get in there and work and chop down the the gluten and make it into very small, harmless parts. And therefore, it it doesn't tend to affect most people. And the official figure is something like um, 5 to 8% of people with celiac disease react to oats. Now, because of that figure, a lot of the people overseas have said, right, well, we're going to put it into foods labelled gluten-free, whereas Australia has sort of taken the, the stance that if it affects one person, then we're not going to put it into 
foods labelled gluten-free that everybody has sort of access to. And when they're talking about the oats, they're also not just talking about regular oats, they're talking about what they have termed a gluten-free oat. And a gluten-free oat is um, specific to how it's grown. So usually oats are grown because they can add nitrogen back into the soil. And so the wheats will take it out of the soil. So one season, the farmer's going to grow his oats to put the nitrogen in. And the next season, he grows his wheat, which takes the nitrogen out. And so this is one way he can keep sort of replanting. So when the oats are growing, you might have some wheat plants that have grown up in the middle of the oats. And then when you um, reap these oats, you're, you're getting the contamination of the wheat in amongst them. So a gluten-free oat has to not be grown in a field that's recently grown the wheat. There has to be at least two years where you've not grown it before you grow your oats. The seeds that you buy have to be 100% oat seeds because quite often they're mixed with the, the, the barley and the wheat. And your reaping equipment has to be fresh and new so that it's not contaminated. So the storage and all these things where there could have been potential contamination now um, has to be controlled and the the grain you grow in the off-season has to be gluten-free. So all of these things control the contamination. So when they are applying the test for oats, they're not actually determining the gluten content of the oat. They're determining the contamination of those crop of oats with wheat, rye or barley grains. Right. So a gluten-free oat is an uncontaminated oat. Is an uncontaminated oat. So in Australia, we can sell them as a wheat-free oat or an uncontaminated oat, but we're not allowed to use the terminology a gluten-free oat. Um, that, that, and, and look, clients will come and say, well, why are they having them overseas? I want to have them. I, I've had people who have been trained medically overseas who are now in Australia that says, well, look, they have them in my home country. I'm going to eat them right from the get-go and we're going to see what happens. So there are some protocols in place if people want to have a look at oats. They obviously would only trial using the gluten-free, the wheat-free, the contaminant-free oat. Uh, usually they would eat it for about three months and then they would have a biopsy. They have to have a biopsy. The absence of symptoms in somebody with celiac disease doesn't tell you what's happening at the biopsy. So the level of the villi need to be looked at. So if I come into you as a client with celiac disease and I want to eat oats, is the advice that to choose an uncontaminated oat product, but you would have to be willing to be biopsied in three months? Is that what the advice is? Or My advice not? is always you've got to discuss it with your gastroenterologist right. whom has to also assess that he thinks that you're a suitable person for it. Um, and he has to be on board because he has to be able to do the, the biopsy. And then you will need to eat the oats for, um, you know, at least three months. We don't have a set nationwide protocol. So there's a protocol that, um, you know, I, I know that I give to people, but gastros have their own protocols as well. And you've got to biopsy at three months and some of the protocols will biopsy at 12 months as well. So a short and a long-term follow-up. Um, and so that's the route we're taking with people with celiac disease currently sort of in in Australia but definitely it's not something they go off and do themselves they do need to discuss it with their gastro and just um, out of interest um people that are diagnosed with celiac disease do they routinely see their gastroenterologist to follow up or do a lot of them 
tend to not continue a follow-up with a gastroenterologist? It's all very individual. Yeah. Um, some of the uh, gastroenterologists will actually say, I'm going to see you in X number of months. And so an appointment is booked when they're going out the door. Sometimes they might say it, but if it doesn't get booked, it gets lost. Um, and, you know, some people just decide they're feeling well, so they don't want to go back and, and sort of get the information. But um, if they want to do something like this, then, you know, I'm always saying that this is what you need to do. You have to go back. You have to talk to a gastro. This has to be a part of it. Now, yeah. if someone does not have celiac disease, uh, so all the people I see, you know, with a non-celiac um, sensitivity, I'm right up there. Let's see if we can get you to eat oats because oats has got that fantastic fibre and the beta-glucans in it, you know, and so if we can add that in, um, then uh, that would be great. And, you know, not everyone can handle oats, but we don't have the full story on oats. We don't exactly know what it is that people are reacting to. So that's that's really interesting, Kim. And now an important skill for anyone with either non-celiac wheat intolerance or celiac disease is reading and interpreting the food labels that they see. So what do you suggest they look for and where? Well, look, it is great to actually see that the manufacturers of gluten-free foods are thinking more about fibre these days. Um, the declaration of fibre sort of on a food label isn't mandatory. So if the nutrition information panel doesn't actually have anything for fibre in it, I take it to mean that the product lacks fibre. Otherwise, the manufacturer would be trying to point out that there's fibre there as a selling point. So that's a bit of a clue from a fibre perspective. So when looking at a label, the, the serving sizes actually change between products. So it's better to compare the figure that's in the 100 grams column. Um, then you know that you're you know, comparing equal portions. So, yes, I think we've said it a few times, um, a high fibre source is about five, uh, you know, greater than five grams of fibre per 100 grams, and it's a good fibre source if it's around the, the five gram per 100 grams. Um, you know, at this point in time, most gluten-free labels, if they have a fibre claim, only have the total fibre on the panel. They don't break it down into soluble and insoluble fibres. I still use that general recommendation. I think we all have been the 25 to 30 grams of total fiber a day for adults. Kids and adolescents can estimate their fiber intake by adding five to their age. And then that's the, you know, the fiber intake that they're aiming for. And ultimately the diet needs to have a mix of the fiber types. So in general, I encourage people to find products with the gluten-free flours and whole grains in them as opposed to the starches as you know, so we want those flowers as leading ingredients. And I emphasise the use of legumes and pulses in this group, um, you know, to try to get that fibre in. So look for those things on the label. Yeah, I think that's helpful because it can be really confusing for people when they're hit with so many numbers on the back of a packet. Um, to have those general guidelines is useful for them and very helpful guide. So, Kim, listening to what you've said so far, would I be right in summarising it to say that the diversity of fibre from a variety of whole grains is equally as important as just our total fibre intake for overall health, including gut health? Uh, look, I actually think that it is. Um, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I really do think that gluten-free fibre needs to be better studied, you know, to exactly know what it is that we're getting from a, a typical intake of foods. I mean, we can come up with 
what we consider to be high fiber diets, but they might not necessarily be what everybody's actually eating. So we need to know what type of um, gluten-free product are people eating? Are they eating the more ones that are higher starch based or are they eating more of the ones that have more of the fiber in them? Um, what are they choosing for snacks? You know, is it that we are increasing fruit and vegetable now with the snacks or are we sort of, again, going for commercial products? So I definitely feel that we need to use the diversity of everything to get as much of the natural fibres in and less of the refined type because I, I'm just not sure um, that the research really isn't there from, from the, the total influence of the, 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 the diets from the refined versus the, the whole grain. So, yes, I do say to people we need to, to aim for one to two pieces you know, of fruit in a day and your four to eight vegetables in a day. It's, you know, still looking at four to six um, grain choices, but in those grain choices, I like to put legume choices, not just keep it to grains, but starting adding in those legumes. Yeah, so, and I, and I guess, as you say, the research, there's still a long way to go because there's been such, a, I guess, an explosion of products and alternatives out there now that weren't there 10 years ago that people have access to. So I guess there is a lot of research, you know, yet to be done. And But I also think that what you've just said um, shows the importance of uh, people who are using a gluten-free diet to consult with an accredited practicing dietitian to actually get that skilled um, guidance as to what their diet should be, because this is very difficult to navigate on your own. Um, so where would you suggest dietitians can go to get additional support themselves and resources when they're helping um, their patients or clients on a gluten-free diet? What do you recommend? Look, there aren't loads of places, but obviously the first place is Celiac Australia. So people who are, you know, dietitians, professionals, you can join as a medical professional to Celiac Australia and then you'd be able to have access to a lot of the materials that they put together. And there's a wealth of sheets and things on their sites that can be useful. Um, I've got a booklet which I've written on celiac disease to help um, clients. That's on my website and, um, and I've got, you know, a sheet on the current breads and their fibre intakes and, you know, the, the, the extra sort of sheets will be growing. Um, if we go to Dinah with DA, it's been a while since I did look there, but they did have um, some things on celiac disease. I think they were purchase, purchasable as opposed to the, the free versions that were on Dinah. Uh, GISA has just a single sheet. It's not an in-depth type sheet, but it does have, um, you know, just a sheet on celiac disease. So it depends on what level of information you need. But they're mainly the ones I can think of. Okay, well, look, thank you so much for sharing all of your, your expertise today. And I think um, we can see that anyone who is following um, a gluten-free diet, for whatever reason that is, really need to pay attention to the variety of whole grains and fibres that they're getting in their diet. And, and they can meet those needs by having, the, as you said, the mixture of grains, legumes, fruit, vegetables um, at, at each of their meal occasions. So it's possible, but it's a complex area. So we really appreciate your insights and your incredible knowledge about this. And we'd also like to thank, again, Freedom Foods, Classic Gluten-Free Cereals for supporting the podcast. So thanks so much for your time today, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to speak and put this segment in and during this month. It's such a privilege. Thanks. 
To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.